I was told that all I had to say was thank you, and I'm much tempted, but we're sickless for punishment, and I will try and say a few words. I thank you, Michael, and the RIDA, for this prestigious award. It is an award not for an individual, but for the art of architecture and those who participate in its development. I am a great believer in teamwork. I believe that architecture is too complicated for any one individual. Therefore, it is an invidious task to thank all those who helped. In fact, the task of giving sufficient credit to those who have worked with us, who have strongly influenced our work, is impossible. They include my partners of yesterday, Norman and Wendy Foster, Renzo Piano and Sue Rogers, and partners of today, John Young, Martha Goldschmidt and Mike Davis, and truly creative consultants such as Gordon Graham, Peter Rice, Tony Hunt, Tom Barker, Laurie Abbott, and Alan Stanton, and clients without whose unique understanding and leadership we would have failed to build key buildings, or any building. Robert Bordaz, of Santa Pompidou, Courtney Blackmore, and Sir Peter Green of Lloyd's, Gordon Edge of TA Technology, Marcus and Rini Bramwell of Creek Veen, and Peter Parker, Reliance Control, plus developers such as Stuart Lipton, Derek Park, and Trevor Osborne. And of course, all the team who have worked with me over the past 20 and more years. Finally, the people from whom I have learned most about architecture, Norman Foster and Renzo Piano, and about life, my parents, and most of all, Ruthie Rogers. I thank them all. In this talk, I shall try to show through our work an ongoing search for an architectural perspective at a time when the modern movement is in crisis. The recent return to historicism is a symptom of this crisis and underlines the need to reevaluate the modern movement. To the day, we're able to see more clearly the flaws of the immediate past. At the end of the 19th century, new architectural theories became prevalent, which had their roots in the secular teachings of great inventors such as Darwin, Freud, Marx, and Einstein, who emphasized the potential of the individual. This was a time of great intellectual energy, assurance, optimism, and progress, a time during which architecture was expressed with vigor and coherence, resulting in a style whose stature and equiv was equivalent to the, to the great heroic movement of the past. During this period, a battle of architectural styles was bitterly fought under the banners of scientific positivism versus historicism. Slogans were developed by the modern movement to the effect that science could solve all problems and that history could be faithfully jettisoned. Adopted by architectural followers, these slogans became dogmatic and simplistic, excuses for minimum economic standards resulting in an anemic poorly detailed, monotonous replicas of a great theoretical ideal, which even today destroys the very thing the modern movement was placed to create, a beautiful world for democratic man. The inability of the modern movement to keep pace with their ever-broadening demands and criticisms of society has, le has led to the recent return to historicism and postmodernism. This pastiche of past styles reflects a society without courage, without confidence, corroded by skepticism. It has fallen back on well-worn platitudes and joking images. What Bertolt Rebeckin called, here just a few days ago, zany, goofy, and arbitrary architecture. Whilst welcoming the widening theoretical spectrum and the general reaction against the watered-down international style, there is little proof that they are the abstract application of historical forms dismembered from their original political, social, and technical background with any true validity at the end of the 20th century. I believe in the rich potential of a modern industrial society. Aesthetically, one can do what one likes with technology, for it is a tool, not an end in itself, 
but we ignore it at our peril. Our practice is searching for a system and a, and a balance which offers the potential for change and urban control. A system which the totality has complete a system in which the totality has complete integrity, yet allows for both planned and unplanned evolution. A dynamic relationship is then established between transformation and permanence, resulting in a three-dimensional framework with a kit of changeable parts designed to allow people to perform freely inside and out. This free and changing the forms of people and parts then becomes the expression of the very architecture that we, have put, that we live in. I'm now going to show a few slides to try to illustrate some of these points. It's worth going back to reconsider, trying to remember what the modern movement was about. No doubt when Brotus and Pouch went to the Japan, went to the Orient to look at the architecture, they were greatly affected, as we can see in their work. They saw buildings like this, the 17th century Katsura Palace, the Mikados, which seemed to show a way towards a less elite future, yet an amazingly beautiful future, rooted in simple material, in simple prefabricated elements, where time, space, materials, reflected thought rather than purely wealth. And this was a reaction against such German palaces as this, which built only a hundred years later, Würzburg, appeared to depend mainly upon the quantity of decoration rather than the quality of the architecture. And this reaction was clearly taken on both before and after by many of the great thinkers and architects of their time. We have today a tendency to forget or to, to, to that there was great studies of the past at the beginning of the modern movement. The Le Corbusier, and these, this is an illustration from Towards the New Architecture, did continuously refer back to, to history, but history was not just forgotten. Hastem compared with his love of technology, of the car, of the, of the process of industrial revolution, the poetry of these elements, the poetry of a bottle, the poetry and the technology of the grain elevators. All this was rethought and gave us new images and new ways of analyzing and of course, the futurists and the constructivists, such as this, who continued and took up the, the poetry of these early thoughts. The fact that the Industrial Revolution would give us a freedom in plan, inspection, in elevation, to meet needs no longer tied down to the platonic values of the past. Next, the Eiffel Tower totally different in its junction to the buildings that were going on a hundred years before. The column, clearly defined by the belt, the tension members, the compression members, each one telling its own story, each creating a new legibility, a new grammar, based upon, of course, the grammar of the past, because we have no way of moving forward without recognizing history. And in power with this, the art, Nam Garbo's great, great head, steel head, again re-examining the form of the early 20th century, giving us a new view, a new understanding, and a new engineering. Again, there is a tremendous tendency today to say, all modern architecture was white, all modern architecture is glass, all modern architecture had no decoration, is it really? Is this really without decoration, Frank Lloyd Wright? We talk about the poverty of detailing. Are these buildings, these Van der Rohe, Barcelona Pavilion, are these buildings really without quality of materials and a freedom which is, was unique 
as far as art and architecture was concerned, or as far as architecture, but yet related to all those other great fields of advance, politics, sociology, technology, the freedom of the plan, the planes, the fluidity of space, a fluidity which never had been achieved before in this way. Coming back, coming to England, Archigram, with their immense enthusiasm, immense inventiveness, Peter Crook and all his people, Mike Webb, officers, the furniture maker, which I remember so well when I was at the AA, this framework, this division of and separation of the parts of the services, of the officers, of the manufacturing areas, and so on, and the feeling of freedom of movement and non-static. And Cedric Price, with his beliefs, with his teachings, with his writings about the role of people, the potential of people, the Sun Palace, all these elements that influenced us so greatly. But clearly we have a crisis. And if we wish to look at the other side of the coin, we must say that, as usual, the slogans were taken up and misinterpreted. And so we have, on the left, diagonally opposite from the Houses of Parliament, directly opposite the Tate, these four buildings, which house upon the most fabulous part of London, the River Thames, the greatest amenity space in London, show no recognition of what architecture is about. Surely this is a public area and a public space. Surely cities are for people, not just for private buildings. And if we look on this side of Nash and, this, and the curve of Nash and recognize it's a simple statement, the, the street is for people, the ground is for the public, the, the colonnade marks where the people move, what is above is, is private, whether it's housing or whether today it might be offices. But this is such a rich statement, so much to be learned from. I'm not talking about the fact that Nash, the great architect, built miles of wonderful buildings looking much alike. That isn't the question, looking much alike. What is the question? That here he recognized, or this recognizes, the role of the city. It's a unique role, because the city really has only one role, and that is as a, as a place for the people to meet. Everything else can be moved out of cities. Whether it's housing, whether it's industry, whether it's universities, we can have everything outside. What we can't do in cities, what we, only thing that we can do, only in cities, is the meeting of people. And so we come back to this and we say, what is this? And we say, well, obviously the planners have been to work. They've tried to give some sort of even height. And somebody has also said, well, it's something to do with public. I think it's more to do with public laboratories. Anyhow, public down here, below this colonnade, and this sort of enforced level. And one says, what for? Why bother? Why spend all that time flying for planning applications? if that's what we get. And somehow the very basic lessons have been forgotten. I, do, I use these buildings only as symbols. I actually feel quite strongly it would be much better if each one just had its own clothes, at least rather than being forced to wear some planner's clothes or some architect who forces you meeting the needs of a planning authority. On the left, Nolly's great plan, 1740, of a part of Rome, showing in white the continuity of public space. All the white is public space. Of course, in the 18th century there was not much shopping, so we're talking about churches, palaces, squares, gardens, markets, all of public spaces. Not only in quantity is it quite amazing, and it's still quite amazing, but also in the way that it flows between large spaces and small spaces, the great Piazza Navona up here and so through the little alleyways, and so that you get this continuity, which even today you can still feel. It's a now in London, with our great parks and a great city, with our wonderful river, I feel that we have somehow lost our way, as in much of our planning. And here again, I must accept that we have a crisis. If I look at what these areas are, the docks, Marble Arch, Oxford Circus, Hyde Park Corner, Trafalgar Square, Leicester Square, Houses of Parliament, and so on, Bank of England, 
in all those dots, which are clearly the places where people meet, the social hubs of our great cities. But only one thing links the lot, and that is their roundabouts for traffic. So the crisis is with us, and what we now have to look at is can the modern movement continue and meet these crisis, these needs, because the needs are there. Here on the on this side, a view of Houston as you approach it, and in fact as you approach it in the distance you say, a great city, great skyline. The problem about approaching Houston is that you never get any nearer than approaching it. That distance is basically the same between any, any building. And then when you look at the building, you see the distance seems to have all these different wonders. Um, in, this area, in this city, one feels again, but surely this is something about people living here, not just people driving through it. And somehow, we have to accept this is a failure. Having said that, I must say, and I couldn't find a slide, uh, that if one looks at slides of Chicago, this is totally different, because there I do believe there are spaces, I do believe there are great routes, I do believe this is a great city built of the 20th century. But as a reaction to this, and an understandable reaction, we are searching for a different way. Beaufield, in France, in housing, and here we see, it seems to me, purely a new form of clothing, not a reinterpretation, of, not a, a new interpretation, or not in fact a realization of what the problem really is, but rather a thin application, a thin application of styles removed of all historical, technological, political content, and applied rather like a less or, more, or, or, or shorter skirt to a series of buildings. It is difficult to say that this housing is more human than any other housing, even here. I would argue it is exactly the same. It is just as over-dominant. It is, in fact, in many ways even worse when you get down to the ground level, as we do here or here. There's not even the beginning of a recognition of that sort of space. And so one sees the, the abstract application of bygone forms to a problem that, live, that exists at the end of the 20th century. Graves, certainly a great painter, a considerable feeling for decoration. But again, one must ask, what is the actual relevance? Are we saying that this part of the building, and of course it's divided into three in the best classical way, as this great building by Sullivan a hundred years earlier was, but then we say, is this really in better scale than the buildings we were looking at before, to the gardens, by the way, which are not there, because actually there's a big motorway, well, quite a big road between there and there. But having said that, even if there wasn't a route between this building and the square, is this really of a better scale at the bottom? Are these shops, these very poor shops, any better than the shops that we've seen in most of London, apart from the fact of the decorative elements? Does this express offices, offices for people? Does this also express the same plan and section? Because actually, the plan is basically the same through here, but the graphic design is different as applied. The key form, the attempt to create some form of Doric head. Um, so is this a, re a relevant form to the end of the 20th century, or is it a pure piece of abstract design? And I feel that we have lessons, and we can learn them, because after all, as I said, this was 100 years before, and that did express a recognition of the street, Sullivan, a recognition, if you like, of the importance of the skyline the great shadow at the top, a recognition of structure and of continuity of offices and office space without becoming haute couture. There are ways out. I do see tremendous excitement. I do think that this is one of the greatest themes of which we have lost the opportunity to, re to, to revive a part of London that needs reviving, Hammersmith by Norman Foster, as Foster stated. The possibility of this great forum without underneath this wonderful tent structure, the offices, the meeting place of traffic and people, this interchange in which traffic moves at one level, people at other levels, people work above, they're shopping at, another, at this level here, the potential of this sort of space and also the possibility of meeting today's needs 
in technological needs, whether it's banking or whether it's shopping or whether it's underground, or whether it's train, or whether it's airplane. The need, the need to meet the needs of prefabrications, of components, of control. Out of all this comes, I feel, a great excitement. And Creer, Creer, who I again have, I admire his writing, much of his writing, the work he has done in reap, um, pointing out to us the value of the street and the square, something at times forgotten by many of us, and the historical meaning of those, of those sort of, of those spaces. But then when I start to look at the actual building, I say to myself, but again, what is this? Surely I've seen this. I've seen this in many of my dreams. I've seen this sort of thing before. The scale of man in relation to sex, the scale of man in relation to colonnades, the scale of man in relation to technology of that period. Is this really any better than parts of the shell center? The drawings are most persuasive. As I said, I do see many ways out. There's fortunately not uh, one form of architecture, one of the enrichments of the hope of this period has been the opening up and the moving away from our more limited approach to our, our earlier roots. Louis Kahn's great work, the Salt Center, a great piazza which is behind here, which overlooks the sea in the distance, the, the, the study of, of, of materials, the integrity of materials, the seriousness of the work, the avoidance of purely decorative elements so as to get to the heart of the problem, a great urban study, a great study of buildings in relation to space. Sterling, Stuttgart, again I feel much of the same, this wonderful, wondrous route from the top, on the hill behind, for the people, those who do not wish to visit the museum, or those who wish to visit the museum, may move through their spaces into this great drum without a, without a roof, and on down ramps, and along and through, and down to the road, and I believe in time there will be a passageway across the path on this side. And again, I find in here a great interest not only in the way that the forms are put together, but also the open-ended system that we use here. In other words, that this is made of series of pieces. I have some slight problems, not visually or even in terms of when I uh, visit calm buildings, but as a client, I realize again that I have this problem that if I move a single thing in this sort of building, of course, just like the other glass buildings and the other thin skin buildings. So this is a massive size and scale. This building has, can have nothing changed. But it is a forgiving, this forgivingness comes out of the materials rather than above, from the plan. Here it seems to me that we begin to open up the possibility of an architecture which can change, can adapt to changing needs. I find the imagery quirky, English, witty, humorous, all things which I'm not very clear about. But overall, I do find it a great urban statement. Let me say, I'm not against in any way the ethics of rebuilding or of the fitness of conservation, and certainly not even of rebuilding old buildings. When we did the Royal Opera House competition, one of the many which we didn't win, we suggested, and I believe we were the only ones to suggest, we suggested that we, the Inigo Jones facade, which we have found the drawings of, should be rebuilt, because in fact they were only a facade, they were only a few feet deep. And they should be rebuilt as a quadrant of the square, because we felt that the square itself was of such importance, of such symmetry, with the great church back down here, that it was worth, within the total context of the space, and again, Covent Garden is one of the few places we have in London, where you can go at any, on a Saturday afternoon and enjoy yourself, where you actually see overlapping activities, where there is in fact a sort of a people's space, and I believe a great, a very successful people's space. And therefore we suggested the rebuilding, having studied the facades and the buildings here, a rebuilding of this quadrant of Inigo Jones, rather than trying to create either a pastiche or a copy of a later period building or, in fact, it's purely expressing oneself. And equally important, and this is the plan of Covent Garden, and this is Covent Garden, the, the market area, we also suggested 
the Covent Garden, the activity of the Covent Garden, people's activities, should be stretched out to the front doors of the Royal Opera House, because the competition held was by the for the extension of the Royal Opera House and for the month and for buildings to be built to help support the Royal Opera House by offices and commercial buildings. And so we suggested the market should be dragged across to the door of the Royal Opera House, because clearly that door is a front door and you can't drag it to the side. So you have to accept that the front door of Barry's building. And though it's not a great building, it is a building of some importance. And so the market was, was pulled towards the front, Barry's building was moved, was, was uh, kept where it was, and a square for performing arts was put in this area here. And the building behind the uh, Inigo Jones uh, walk here, the building behind had a great atrium, a centralized building, which was a continuation of, the, of, of this sort of form in modern terms, we say. But the building itself was to be a quiet building, all traffic to be moved into car parking below ground, all access to be below ground. And so this has become a great, a great pedestrianized area. Next. And so I do feel there's an ethical stance for the new rebuilding of previous historical buildings, because in the end, Quality talks across ages, the time. And if the functions could be made to match, and in this situation we felt that these very thin, thin facades, I from 15 or 16 feet thick, we could make match the function to the rest of the building, we therefore felt that this was justified. There's Covent Garden itself, there's the Indigo Jones quadrant, there is the Royal Opera House with certain extensions to it. There's the new, what the proposed Royal Opera House Square, and here is the great atrium, which is going to be a dynamic and lively space for people, which is also parcel we are through the building here. And the building on the outside was to be quiet and quite secondary to the two primary elements, Covent Garden, the church, the square, and so on, and the Royal Opera House. And so you had a building which was really quite quiet, both in materials and in scale, and in grain, but it would have been extremely dynamic in the inside. And so, as it was mentioned, to the National, to the National Gallery, there's another competition. The National Gallery gave us the opportunity to look at the question of weaving a part of London together. And we spent quite a lot of our, we say, spare time looking at the possibility of weaving, weaving bits of London together. It's a sort of hobby of the office. Leicester Square, it's not quite true, it's not a roundabout, it's still got that feeling there of a roundabout. It looks like it's a sort of people's square about to be converted back to a roundabout any moment. Um, the idea was to link Leicester Square through this small route, which is going downhill, and there's the site, and to try and link Piccadilly Circus down here and so to create these three squares, one, two, and three down here, into one pedestrian area. These squares are all about uh, only 400 yards apart, so one hardly knows they're in, that, these, that there's any relationship between Trafalgar Square and the others. The National Gallery is here, the Martins in the Field, the only good building on the square, the only great building on the square, holding the space back from leaking up this over-large opening to Charing Cross Road, the space pours down here, overscale space here. No way to get to Trafalgar Square except if you chance your life, and if you do get to Trafalgar Square, the only activity is feeding the pigeons. And so, one has some basic urban problems. After all, this is, used to be called, or was called, the heart of an empire. And this seemed to us to have given us a key, in, in, in contextual terms, to link these elements, to create a great gateway building between these spaces. And so we suggested that this, that uh, uh, Leicester Square should be linked down this pedestrian route, down steps, because it's going downhill, to pass under Palmau East, in the central of the square, between the two fountains and Nelson's column. Basically, there are this equal distance between this site here, the center of the National Gallery, this side here, which is now a national car park, and the two fountains and this. In other words, there's a geometrical element which goes from here to here to here through the fountains and 
centralized on this. Next. And so we wish to perform this, this gateway building with a national gallery on the top. And this is a suggestion that people would come through into the National Gallery through, through a shopping area, either be sh because there were so many people coming through this, we found that we could actually have shops rather than offices. This is what the brief asked for at ground level. And if you were to enter the Trafalgar Square at the center, there would be a, the National Gallery being properly lit from the top and internally a flexible space. And whether that space, whether the, the, the keepers wish that space to be 13th century or 22nd century, we saw that as being their job, therefore we had just a general purpose space, which is well lit and easily controllable. And then a series of towers, that tower, which viewed across the rest of London, across the great uh, rooftops of Whitehall and St. James's, so that the view, the people could view here, and we see one of the great uh, paintings, in the sense of being an external painting, or go inside and see the great national French, the great paintings of the National Gallery in here. Now people then said, but that doesn't fit in. And this is a very interesting question, it seems to me. Because then you have this question of what is har harmony and what does fit in? And what doesn't fit in? And what is all this thing about making buildings look like buildings of past ages? I would suggest that this has never happened really until the 19th century with a piece of a tent. And that what we call great harmonious spaces are either spaces built by the same architect, I Bedford Square, or spaces we remember as being harmonious, in the sense that all that all buildings are the same. But actually the buildings are different, but they are such a quality that they all fit together to create a harmonious space. This will be as, as true if you go in some marks, and after all, certainly the Byzantine, uh, strongly Byzantine cathedral or the Ducal Palace all the clock tower, all the, all the uh, 16th, or 15th, 16th, and 17th century buildings, they all blend together. Just in the same way as here in Piazza della Signoria, we see the same sort of harmonious space, but harmony by a form of contrast, of quality through contra and contrast, of considered contrast. But for instance, here you have the 12th and, century, 12th and 13th century Piazza, uh, Palazzo Vecchio with its great tower, and here you have the uh, Vasari Uffizi Gallery aimed very carefully upon this vertical element here, but not copying this building. It uses the late Renaissance motif with great care, picking up the urban challenge, but of a different scale, of a different nature, using perspective. The newly to invented tool as part of its technology to build up an ex the relationship between these elements and this. And then you move from this to a building a hundred years earlier, which is a totally different, the lodger, totally different scale, to either that or that. Or the medieval buildings, which unfortunately no longer exist over here, but instead we have a sort of uh, a, a, nice, uh, a 1920, I suppose, uh, pastiche tradition, but still. And yet we call all this space harmonious. It showed confidence, it's a great space. It certainly didn't lack courage. I believe there are two types of architecture and both of great value. There are two types of architects, maybe. So those architects who find their interest in trying to be innovative, in trying to push forward, to push those boundaries forward. And now those architects who are equally valuable, who work with buildings and on buildings, who are who get their harmony, their relationship, by being merely invisible within the total environment. These two forms of architecture are not in any way exclusive. They are absolutely necessary. The Renaissance buildings always stood basically in space against a medieval background. There is no reason to believe that we can only need one form of building. I'm all for many forms of building. I have great doubts when we start to imitate styles of the past. Coming back to the National Gallery, as I said, here you see this attempt at this interrelation. One tower, the center of the National Gallery with this poor man's cupola which marks the center. The Samaritans in the field, the idea 
of trying to create pressure points, trying to create an equilibrium between this point and this point, slightly lower, um, onto, this, onto the center, to create a pressure point which would actually lift the center, make it clearer where the center is, by the sort of inverse curve, and then relating all three elements, i.e. this element, that element, and this one, to Nelson's column itself, a competition entry, which was uh, basically laughed out of court when it was uh, first heralded, and when Nash objected strongly to its positioning in the center of Trafalgar Square, which we now talk about as being one of the great British monuments. I put this slide up because I feel strongly that we are in danger of being uh, caught out, that there is a form of architecture now which looks towards being the most, towards the public for what they are most likely to want. I think this term will be kitsch. Kitsch was a nice term invented over a hundred years ago by a German who was basically was looking for a word that explained art or uh, design that was highly popular, highly popular, popular, and design which did not lead the public, it followed the public taste rather than led public taste. I think that that is exactly what this building reflects. It actually does not lead, it follows. When you actually examine what it follows, you have to say, what is it doing? Actually, how does it relate the whole of Trafalgar Square, not just the National Gallery? What is this building actually doing at street level? Isn't this a sort of National Gallery dash baronial palace? Or is it actually the National Gallery? In which case, where is the National Gallery? There, 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 or where? And it seems to me that there is a tremendous danger that we are losing our confidence. As I've said, we've done buildings which have tried to be contextual, which have tried to be uh, to fit into the environment. The Brownwell House, um, which was on a beautiful site. We did a number of designs of the other buildings in this area. Um, the idea that the building should not be, uh, it should be uh, highly visible, that it should be secondary to the site, so it is planted all over. The great wall at the back, which links through the whole house, the steps from the entrance, entrance is over here, the steps towards the water, there's a creek down the bottom over here. And so slowly this building becomes covered by the plants, but still has a strong and definite geometry behind this, this planting. Next. And the use of traditional materials of slate, um, of stone and, and of block. The entrance across from the road towards the creek and this sort of age, this, uh, this, this gallery which links through the building to the paintings on the right over here and the rooms which open off this, this gallery. So here again is a building which, is, which takes its clues from the environment which in problem solving terms is certainly the environmentally, the environment itself is the most important single point. To uh, change direction in Moss, Peter Rayner Bannon mentioned that uh, there's only one in Moss. I'm about to show him there's two. But uh, uh, this is uh, England's entry into the microchip world uh, production system. And here, obviously, microchips. The main question is cleanliness. Therefore, mechanical services. Fifty percent of the cost of this building is in the super, this little area here. Either services up there. They have to be uh, easily changeable, easily gettable at, and therefore they are planted where on the center of the roof, where they stretch left and right, either from here into this area, or from here into this area. There's total flexibility between this space and this. Once you have this services up here and structure to support it, it seems to be logical rather than to have columns to interfere with the production area, to have tensioning cables coming down from the columns, holding up this great umbrella roof which stretches out across the field and creating, again, a statement about microchips and about Newport and the entry into Newport that this building faces and the flexibility we're looking at. And as I've said earlier on, what we're looking for is this balance between permanence and transformation. We have suffered in the earlier buildings, specifically Ryan Lyons' control for Peter Parker, in people and in the client having uh, had us complete the building and leaving, us, leaving it and other people cutting the building up about. And we feel that on that old statement, the Corbusier, I think, in fact, also said it, the people are always right, that we have to find a form of architecture where if you want to have a hole, you can have a hole, where if you want to have a wall, you can have a wall. If you want to fill in the hole, you fill it. 
and if you want to add more, more services, more structures, you can add it. You can still add it. Yet, between, there is a balance between this transformation and permanence. Because, of course, if everything is transformed, then you can have no urban continuity, you can have no visual image. Therefore, you have got to find a rhythm, rather like jazz, a rhythm, a beat, which is sufficiently constant, sufficiently strong, which allows, that it allows for play of secondary elements within that beat, and distorts, and that is the juxtaposition, or the uh, between, and that is the aesthetic, aesthetic, if you like, between permanence and transformation. Permanence and transformation, we've talked a lot about it in plan, we've talked about it a lot about it in section. We have been for a long time interested in trying to find how you can develop it also in elevation. Again, a, it seems to me that if we do not control the detail, if we, if we end up with this, what one might term as overcoat buildings, those uh, buildings we saw in Houston, which are basically great overcoats, which, where all you do is design sort of zipper tone facades, either you take a grid and plaster it over everything. We don't control the process of manufacture, manufacture, the way that we erect the buildings, then we will never have detail, and it is detail which, is, which, which gives scale and grain to our culture. This is the end of one of the tension and compression elements, either the beam, which has been held down at the bottom um, here, then the courtyard, the building can be changed in plan by having courtyards and so on, and the pieces which are added to the mechanical services. Further laboratories in Princeton for TA technology, um, not as highly serviced, different climatic problems, a translucent wall rather than a solid wall, but some of the same ideas. The idea also that the permanent part of the building is this part. That will probably go on for a hundred years, maybe for more. It could be certainly on, on. But mechanical services, they change in this sort of situation at least a part of them every year and the majority every five to ten years. From the Pompidou, competition, 1971, the basic the concept was to try to create a building which dealt with culture, but was also to do with the activities of a city, a building for people as well as for those who, uh, who enjoyed seeing specific art or library elements. There were four specific departments and we said yes, but there must be more. We have to have overlapping of activities. And by, the creating, by creating overlapping activities, more people will come and therefore the, 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 the feeling of the great ga of gateway, the feeling of exclusion, the feeling of an elite space will be broken down. And so you get what is more of a market space rather than just a, a, sort of, uh, uh, a building for the few. And so I think this has happened. And in fact, um, what it, the building draws people who I think would never normally go to the department, but who may just go up the escalators. It's a great climbing frame. It's highly legible. Part of the grammar of the technology that we use, and as I said, we enjoy technology, we enjoy science. Um, as, as Karl Popper himself has, has said, science is one of the greatest experiences of mankind. And in that sense, he, the legibility of the science and technology, so that anybody can read the pieces, but read the way the building goes together, makes it, we hope, more accessible. And it is more accessible because the corridors are not on the inside, but they're on the outside, the streets on the, on the outside, and so on. The idea that the building could be transformed, the idea of the audiovisual screen as the primary element on the outside to communicate to the people both within this area of the city and to communicate and link cities across the world. We lost this battle because at some point someone suddenly said, ah, but who's going to control, control the audiovisual? They didn't say who's going to control the art or who's going to control the light. They said who's going to control the audiovisual on the outside, realizing that millions might come here as they do, and they said, will it be the left wing or the right wing? And that was the death of the audiovisual on the outside of the building. Still, the French used this as a great screen. This is an amphitheater facing a screen, and the people make up the elevation. The question of technology, the relationship of technology, the fact that buildings are designed, or should be designed, so that um, the joints and the parts and pieces are themselves part of the poetry, science or technology is part of the poetry of architecture, of the problem solving. The column, the waterfall column, the full of Gerberet after a German 19th century engineer, 19th century engineer, the legibility of the tension elements, the compression elements, and the way that they work. The fact that the whole building moves and is allowed to move, um, 
so that the pieces are more clearly expressed. You know, here again, you know, the link, I have never understood the link between, uh, the difference between engineering and architecture. As a, at a certain point, they've just overlapped. Uh, a Gothic cathedral, again, this expression of technology, um, the, the, the enjoyment of the parts and the way they come together, the decoration that comes out of the engineering, as which is in fact architecture. The, the mechanical service, the short life part of the building, which feeds the long life part inside, the great spectacle spaces internally, which will long outlive, yet probably will long outlive the, the, the use of the building. In other words, the museum is very likely to go on to move somewhere else, as it has done a number of times this century. There will no doubt the library, but other activities may well replace with that, and then these services will just change as time demands. And so you have this juxtaposition between transformation and permanence, and the building is a catalyst within the, the, the city texture, people coming to watch people, one of the most exciting things of all, in my opinion, and the joyride up, up outside the, the building. Finally, Lloyd, a different situation, no longer a public building, a building uh, which is, is a magnet to draw people from all over the, uh, the, uh, the country and the world, but rather a building related to the one of the major institutions in London, perhaps the second largest after, after the uh, Bank of England, or banking, insurance. Lloyd's is the centre of the insurance market of, of, of London. So the Bank of England down here, a very tight site here, with another competition. The old Lloyd's up here. The idea of putting a simple rectangular building on this irregular site, but taking up the space, the slack, because we felt that Lloyd's, that this building should fill the whole site. It's the nature of the city of London is not of squares, but rather of narrow spaces, the spaces forming, if you like, the, uh, the, 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 the excitement of the, uh, uh, for the people who are walking along them. And so we felt the building should fill the site. And so the towers take up the slack, the six towers, around the gate, atrium in the center, and the building is layered. Because again, we feel, and have felt, that this reaction against the, the simple building, CU, sorry, this is left to right, the CU building here, the P&O building, these are buildings which are probably one of the best, in my opinion, perhaps the best American type uh, building in, in, in London, but even so, uh, it only takes one glance and you read it all. And what we're trying to do is to create a situation where the, this ties together, where, where Lloyd ties together both the te technology of the modern buildings such as this with the intricate and detailed, uh, grainy scale of the Victorian buildings here. And so you have this building with six towers marking the skyline, the idea that as you walk up, these towers catch your eye and lead you past, and both to the building and past the building. So the whole thing is, is related to how the passerby sees the building. And again, this question of thin skin buildings, um, the more that we work, I think the more we feel that there is an argument against obviously, the thin skin building because the urban needs are often, uh, the passerby's needs are often very different to the user's needs, yet the two have both got to be answered. But the needs do not have to be, uh, cannot always be answered by a simple half inch thickness of wall. More self explanatory idea of the highly flexible space around the atrium, the fact that this is a, a, a market space that Lloyd's asked us to create a space that would see them well into the next century that we, they did not know whether they what speed they would grow or whether in fact information technology would, be would affect them in such a way that they might not, might not grow. But what we said is, if you have this sort of standard 16 meters type space, it doesn't matter terribly if it's offices, if it's underwriting space, or if it's something quite different where it becomes one day a university, such as space has a, has a 100, 200 year life, whilst these towers with their short term element, they have the they, they have a more, they have the, these are the elements which will be changed against the more permanent central space. And therefore, you have this uh, dialogue, if you like, between the permanent and the changeable areas. And the alternative would have been to start to, with this great atrium in the center to build in these six towers and the lack of flexibility of that space. And of course, the highly serviced space and the need to service to get to those services so that you can rip them out when they come to the end of their life, and, and out of that comes the aesthetic. And here, this is one of the entrances. These are the staircases going up, reaching up to the sky in those towers. The ground area down here, 
There's an arcade which you walk all the way around the people, all the people can walk all the way around the building. And here you have the semi public activities. There's restaurants, coffee areas, a couple of shops, a small museum, and so on. That is all at street level to try and enrich the street life. And the mechanical services feeding into this concrete, these concrete building, uh, columns and floors, and then the translucent glass. There's the basic materials. The building, which will be open, about th which will be completed in about six months. The great atrium, going through the sort of 12, 13 floors, um, reaching up the sky up here. This, these areas here is the market space. Lloyd's was going to originally open with two floors, two galleries. People say, but do people really use flexibility? Well, our original brief basically asked for two galleries. We're now actually furnishing up the fourth and the fifth gallery for extension of market space. Here's offices instead, the view out, the great south window, the atrium, the towers, the building itself, uh, from looking down towards the bank, mechanical services, the cranes, the great, the great birds on the roof. And finally, I wanted to come back to the, to the possibility that architecture, not the possibility, the belief that architecture has a role within a global society that much of what Buckminster Fuller has talked about before and many others have talked about is in fact possible that we have now got immense knowledge. We've got information technology and technology to spread that knowledge that we have in our hands the possibility to enrich the condition of man. Thank you very much. Not only a great production, but like all good architects, completed on time despite a late start. Richard's first sponsor is Peter Rayner Bannum, a commentator. His second sponsor is a patron, Peter Palumbo.